Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf. And I'm Jenny Taylor. And today, we are two widows interviewing a widower. And so I'm really excited to introduce our new friend, Jason Clausen. Jason, how are you? I'm doing great. I think you're always doing great. I, You and I have only ever met once in person, and it was pretty brief at a widow <laughs> event not long ago. But I follow you on Facebook, and I've seen some of the great things you're doing, some of the beautiful things you share. And I am so grateful that you are willing to join us and our listeners today in sharing not only the story of the loss that you faced as a widower, but also just your perspective on life. And I'm sure you have quite a bit about resilience that you can teach all of us. So thank you. Thank you for joining us. And we'd love to get started by just asking, who are you? Can you introduce yourself to us and our listeners? Yes, this is perfect. I I appreciate you letting me be here. And again, telling my story and being vulnerable helps me to be able to heal through the process. So my name is Jason Clausen. I'm a Utah boy. So born and raised, I'm still here and uh, I love it here. By trade, I'm a clinical therapist. So I sit in therapies with many people that are going through grieving and depression and suicide and all those going into that. So I've been doing that as a profession for, for many, many years. And just a little bit about me, I, my wife's name is Valerie, and I have two boys, and uh, Boston and Cooper, and um, we live in uh, Utah County, where we're trying to work through our pain and our loss, and we're trying to do the best we can. And uh, me as a dad slash mom, <laughs> are learning how to grow through this experience, embrace for impact, but we are growing through the daily struggles of life and becoming stronger through the process. I love that. I didn't realize you were a clinical therapist, but that makes so much sense to to see where you had that educational and experiential training. And I imagine you're a very effective guide for others now that you've not only studied things like grief and loss, but you've experienced it. And I imagine you're wonderful for those that you serve. Can you tell us a little bit about your late wife, about your boys? What's life look like? How long ago did you lose her? How did you lose her? Tell us a little more about your family background. Uh, that's a great story. I I remember uh, this is just over three years ago. There was a point in our life where we thought life was going the best that it's ever gone in our life. And just to give you an example is I was a clinical director at a recovery program. 
my wife had struggled with weight loss for years, and she was feeling the best she's ever had in a long time. She lost over 100 pounds. The energy, the light was coming back in her life and her eyes, and then my boys were thriving in sports and school. Um, <laughs> and my 40-year-old brother that hadn't been married finally got married. And to top it off, we're building this dream house that will be ours for a long period of time. So I felt like this was the life that was meant for me. And I could really kind of look into the distance and I could see our future and what it was going to be like. And I felt at this point, life was going to be really good and happy for me and my family. And um, up until that point, we went through some struggles that we kind of have learned and grown from. But up until this point, I felt like I was living my best life and uh, felt like I could do anything and nothing could affect us at this point in our life. And this is where about a month after my brother got married, this is where things begin to shift and change. My wife came to me and says, hey, Jason, I have this lump in my stomach and I don't know what it is. So we began to talk about it and see what it was. And I said, let's hold on, Valerie. Let's not jump to conclusions. Let's wait a week before we kind of get concerned. So we wait a week and we find out that this lump, this large mass in her stomach had grown. And that's where we begin to get concerned and worried and fearful about what this was going to be. And I tried to be the supportive uh, father and just stay calm and just so that there can be a, like a, a steady, steady person in the situation. But obviously, deep down inside, there were some concerns. So we found ourselves at our primary care physician, and uh, he said something that was interesting. He did some tests, and he, he said, are you, are you pregnant, Valerie? And she chuckled, and she said, that would be impossible because for years we've struggled with infertility and trying to get pregnant. So that was something that would have been nearly impossible. So he referred us to our doctor, and we did some scans and tests. We did some blood work, and there was some concerns, but up until this point, there was no definitive diagnosis or telling us what was wrong. And I remember the doctor that delivered our uh, second child ran some tests, and she goes, I'm going to take a look at them, and then I'll call you back. And I remember going to the movie Lightfoot, and um, I still can't <laughs> watch that movie without crying because prior to that movie, she called back and says, it doesn't look good, Valerie. There are spots all over your body. She goes, but I'm not an oncologist, and I don't want to jump to a conclusion, so I'm going to refer you to a doctor. So, again, we didn't know. Our life was put on hold. This glorious life that we are living is put on hold. And so we found ourselves um, with this doctor, ran some more tests, blood work, and up until this point, she's like, I just want to do the right thing, and I want to have surgery to make sure that there's nothing um, really concerning. So, again, it's put on hold until things are figured out. So we found ourselves up at St. Mark's Hospital having exploratory surgery, and she they did a partial hysterectomy, and that's where life began to change for us because – 
as she did the surgery, what the doctor found is there was a large mass on her colon, and then she closed up because she didn't want to cause any more problems, and she found that there was stage four colon cancer. And, oh, and as we were, And as we were sitting in the, the waiting room with my in-laws and my wife's best friend and my uh, uh, I still get emotional talking about this, but um, my sister, the news where she looked me in the eyes, she said, sorry, Jason, it's stage four colon cancer. I am so sorry. And that just that that moment. And for anybody that has had that news, it just changed your life in a moment of instance. And it just you, you, you just don't know what to do. It's just it really changed who I was, where I was going and this happy life that I was supposed to live. Hey, Jason, how long ago was the diagnosis and how old were your two boys at the time when they had this exploratory surgery? So it's about three years ago. So my boys are, Boston was 11, 10, 11, and Cooper was about five. So, and in that moment when you get shared that news, man, my brain went 100 miles an hour. And I'm thinking, how long do we have? How are we going to pay for this? What am I going to do with my boys? How am I going to tell my boys? How am I going to keep working? How am I going to manage everything? And my brain was just racing 100 miles an hour. It is so overwhelming, isn't it? (laughs) Absolutely. I just like, I couldn't think straight. And I was feeling all kinds of emotions that I've never felt before. And dealing with the stressors of life just was heavy on my shoulders as I sat there and just sobbed about about how my life had changed in an instant of being so good to so hard and difficult. This is so heartbreaking. I'm just picturing, again, I've never been through losing a spouse to cancer, but this past Christmas we lost my sister to cancer, and she lives out of state, so I wasn't really close to her journey, but the few times that we were able to visit and and help around the house or help with her kids, seeing what that horrific disease of what cancer is but i know michelle you have lived that you yeah you've been the one being told by the doctor i'm so sorry here's the diagnosis right it's stage four and stage there's nothing we can do it's, we, it's time it's, i guess right. how much time right it's it's really it's stage four is typically the treatment options are down to managing yeah. how long or how <laughs> fast it can grow and how <sighs> fast this person will die. So Jason, can you tell us what were the treatment options you and Valerie were given and what what did you choose? What did you do and how long did you end up having with her? Yeah, I mean the hard part is there's no family history, there's no symptoms leading up to this. It's like going from nothing to stage 4 cancer. So there's no preparation. There's it's just like something tragic just happening in a moment instance and you're left to pick up the pieces and move forward. So our options were to go and do chemo. And those were our options. And um, we were giving two to three years to live. And that was the life expectancy. But um, me, I just said, no, we're going to fight it. We're going to do everything we can. We're going to do everything the doctor tells us. And we're going to power through this. 
and we're going to say, you know what, I'm a therapist, I'm helping people, so maybe that will help out. <laughs> um, we are helping the neighborhood, we're doing so much good, so maybe there is a chance that God will help us or give us a break to be able to help with our situation. So we'd go up and we'd do treatments. And the hard thing is we did the treatments. And again, guys, we did everything we were told to do. And every time we went and got a scan, every time after, every time, there was no change or it got worse. So that's the hard thing is you're hopeful, you're praying, you're just doing everything that you were supposed to do and nothing, nothing changes. And it creates this helplessness of how come someone in our situation, as young as my wife is, has to go through something so hard and difficult and how come there's no hope in the process? So how old was was she? She was 38. 38. Yeah. Very young. And very young. And it was just, it felt like, so you go and do treatments and you're hoping that there's a change in the scan and you build yourself up like that resilience, like, okay, we can do this. We're going to fight it back. And then every time you get some news, it would kind of beat you down. And then you'd have to build yourself back up. We're going to do this. We're going to do treatment. And that's just an exhausting process to continue to fight through. And from someone that's the supporter, I I tell people, make sure to check in on the supporters (laughs) because they're dealing with it and they're going through it. And a lot of people just focus on the patient, the person, but they don't say, hey, how are you doing? Because that is so valuable to know that that caregiver, that supporter needs as much or even more support than the person that's going through the treatment. Right. We've <laughs> we've done a few podcasts on caregiver help, and I, I think we could do a whole lot more because often the caregiver is neglected and overlooked, and, and especially in a diagnosis of cancer, you're stage four, and likely to lose your partner. There's just so much that you're dealing with as a caregiver. You're, you're expending energy and hopefulness to fight some miracle is going to come into your life. And at the yep. same time, you're dealing with massive amounts of anticipatory grief. Yeah. Oh, yeah, this, and- this is just heartbreaking. Hey, Jason, one second. We're going to take a quick break and come back. Yeah. When we come back, yep. we're going to ask you to walk us through what comes next, which we know is unfortunately not the not the happy ending <laughs> or this best life that you and your wife were in the moment thinking you were living. And unfortunately, it... Uh, took a very different direction. We'll be right back. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America, but this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Okay. 
Okay, and we are back. Jason, can you pick up where we left off? You were speaking of, obviously, your wife is struggling and going through the horrific battle of what chemotherapy is, and yet you're also carrying the weight of, of looking at chemo's not working, the results aren't coming, we're, we're going in the wrong direction. You've got the weight of the world of raising these two boys and paying the medical bills and just the very thought of going on possibly without her. Can you tell us then what happens well, obviously now we know what happens, but walk us through the treatment, the end of treatment, the end of her life, and let's go there. To add on, I'm a therapist helping others that are going through their hardest problems. So yeah. it just it just got heavier and heavier. But I want to make a, a point with the doctor. After she came in and told Valerie that she has stage 4 colon cancer, the doctor left, and I ran down the hall after the doctor, and I said, doctor, what can we do? Like, and I just started peppering questions upon questions, and she paused, and she said, Jason, you'll get through this. But she looked at me in the eyes, and it was, at the time, probably wasn't the best advice, but she says, Jason, cancer has a way of enhancing your life. And I didn't like that, and I said, I didn't want my life to be enhanced. I want my life to be back where it was. But that has stuck with me, and it still sticks with me about my journey and uh, where I've come but that's always stuck in my head. Cancer has a way of enhancing your life. I but- totally relate to that. I, <laughs> I, you know, I've said this a million times and I've, I've told you, Jenny, I have experienced both the most intricate amount of pain and grief and sorrow. And yet at the same time, joy. And sometimes simultaneously. In the same breath. In the same breath. The worst moment has also been such a connection with my spouse that I would have never experienced. And you can't possibly put it into language and words and articulate it in any manner until you experience it. So I, she's not wrong, but I got to tell you, man, I hate that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I got to tell you, I never wanted to learn it this way. I have one question. How was your wife feeling about this process of, treatments. I know for my husband, he he wanted to treat. And when the treatment became a, a terrible way of life, his quality of life was shot. He came to me and said, I'm done doing treatment. And so our three to five years ended up at, at 22 months. Tell me about your wife. Like, was she in this fight as well? Or I mean, she's 38 and she has two young boys. I, I know as a mom, I would do whatever I could to try to make a miracle happen. Yeah, I, I just remember her one time looking at me and goes, Jason, this doesn't happen to young moms. This happens to people that are have lived a good life. <laughs> so, but she looked at me and says, I'm going to fight this. I'm going to, I'm going to fight this for the boys. I'm going to fight this for you. And I'm going to fight because I'm not going to give up. And, uh, she was in it and because she wanted to still live life and she still wanted to have influence in people's life. So she would go and do these treatments. But, I mean, towards about halfway, it's, you can tell how it's taken a big toll on her body and her mental health. And I just remember just I, I became kind of the counselor and the support where she would just sit there and cry. She's like, I don't want to do this anymore. This is so hard and painful. She goes, this is so hard, but I will keep doing it because I want to be in your guys's life. And to sit there at her bed and just 
as I'm rubbing her feet and tucking her in and getting her comfortable is just some of the hardest conversations that I've had with my wife. And again, it goes back. I don't want to have these conversations. This is not what life was supposed to be like. This is us spending time with my boys and, and, and laughing, but not tucking her into bed when she is like um, shrinking and she doesn't have any hair and her saying, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to keep fighting. And I remember towards the end, she looked at me one time and she just says, Jason, why isn't this working? And she goes, is this supposed to be part of God's plan for me? And I'm like, no, we're going to fight this. You're going to stay in my life. I wasn't about to give up. But for me, it was about just just building her up and just trying to help her through the process. And again, uh, the caregiver is that mental exhaustion. I was trying to build her up to where she could keep fighting. But again, I was exhausting everything that I had in the process. So nine months went by, you guys, and we... mm, We went up to Huntsman, and and the doctor said she had two weeks to live. Oh, my gosh. We got hospice involved. We went back to my her parents' house, and we sat there, and and we let people know that the time was limited. It was interesting because she had two weeks, but what made Valerie so special is people would come over, and people were having such a hard time. And (laughs) I laugh about this, but it was it was Valerie that was comforting the people that were starting to grieve her loss already. So she was spending extra energy she didn't have to be able to help comfort people that were struggling with this new way of life. And then I remember and this is just really raw. um, I remember one of the last conversations I had with her. She just said, Jason, I'm done fighting. I'm done. And then the next day is when she passed away. Oh and uh, and what we learn about funerals and rallying the troops is like you got so much support during that time. And I felt so much love. And even through the funeral, there were so many people checking in and helping me and building me up. But as soon as that funeral got over and people left and it disappeared, that's when life began to get so hard because... I had to learn my new role as a widower, as a man and working. And then I had to take on the responsibilities that my wife had always provided on top of my grief. So I'm just like, that's why there's so much you're in the widower's fog is because you're trying to learn this new way of life to try to deal and manage and and all these responsibilities that you have never done before. You have to pick up the pieces and try to live a normalcy life the best you can. Well, and those this. are the mechanical parts, right? The other yeah. side of that is the emotional part, the part where you you yeah. are, who am I without this person in my life? And how do mm-hmm. I become a mother and a father? And yeah. how do I balance my ideas and thoughts without having this person that I love and trust to collaborate with and to bounce ideas off of and to have support. And so you're, yeah, yeah, you're learning all the mechanical things, but those are going to get figured out one way or the other, but you're trying to do it in a fog of a loss of personal identity. Yeah. 
that's why it's so difficult that first year because it really takes just that time to figure it out. I remember going back to work eight days later, um, and that that's not the best decision that I've ever made. So, no. but going back, and I thought I'm going to go help people, and I'm going to get my mind off of it. And I found myself nine months later after my wife passed away struggling. My kids were struggling and I was just falling apart. And I remember there was a specific time where I'm working and I just took my lunch break. And I remember driving to a church parking lot and just sitting there and going, I can't do this. This is too hard and overwhelming. And I remember I I pulled out my phone and I ended up texting 14 of my closest friends and people in my church group and neighbors. And I said, I need you guys to be at my house. I want to kind of open up my heart and let you know what's going on. And I sent it, and there was a sense of relief because I began to open up about the pain briefly about what was going on. And I didn't know what was going to happen until 7 o'clock. People just started to show up and knock on my door. And we found ourselves in my front room. And if you've ever seen the show Intervention, I called my own intervention <laughs> to be able to tell my support group what was going on. And I, I, I coined the phrase, my healing team. And this was important in my journey as, as far as getting help, because in that moment, there was people that were know that I was struggling. They didn't know what to do. And sometimes when you don't know what to do, you do nothing. And it's like the support vacuum where people are in your life, but they're not supporting you. And that's how I felt until I took the initiative to invite them back into my healing team. And I told them what was going on. They told me things that I needed to hear and what was going on with my boy's life. And together in that moment, we began to come up with plans and I was able to unload my backpack of stressors to different people in my life. And what we did also is we created a, a code word when things would get really difficult or really hard. I created a code word that I could text one person in that group. And that one person in that group could send out a text that Jason needs support. He's having a hard time. And in that, they got specific roles of what they would do when they would receive this text and they would just come and they would just take over for me. So when I struggled, I sent out help and I got uh, my mom would come over and do my laundry. My neighbor would come over and take the kids. My sister-in-law would bring me or someone in my neighborhood would come bring me dinner. I would have other people that would text me um, encouraging texts. And they would rally around me when I was in my difficult spots. And for a moment, you guys, that began to shift the way that I began to heal is because I involved people in my life. And I always say the opposite of grieving is connection. And I invited people in my life that began to help me. And I knew in that moment I didn't have to be the strongest person in my journey because they could carry me with their strength and I could with their help, get through whatever I needed to in the moment. And that was such an incredible moment of my life that changed the way that I heal, the way that I teach people how to heal, is involving people to be able to 
kind of divvy out those things that you're stressing with. And that was extreme. I love this. I love this so much. I love that you called in your own healing team. I love that it's 14 people. That's huge. Most people, they're lucky if they have two or three really strong, supportive friends. But 14, and I'm sure some of those are family members. That's amazing. And it's great that you could delegate or or share that burden across those people, right? Because they also have their own lives and their own stressors and their own things going on. And sometimes it's hard for us to ask, especially if we only have two or three and we know what they're dealing with too, right? So I love that you had a large team to call on. And I love that you call it a backpack of stressors because that's what it feels like. You're carrying this load on your shoulders. And that's amazing. Thanks, Michelle. But also you think about like people are also grieving with you. Yeah. And if you don't invite them in to help, that doesn't help them in their process. So in a sense, you're giving them an invitation to heal as well by including them in that process. Yeah, that's what I was going to jump in and say. I love that you were willing to let so many people in because I guarantee every one of those people had been thinking and worrying and praying and wondering, how can we help Jason? How can we help the boys? What can we do? We don't want to overstep. We don't, you know, that, that intervention where usually when it gets to the point that somebody needs an intervention, everyone around that person is well aware an intervention is needed. (laughs) Right. And yet as adults in a free society, we try to respect one another. We don't want to step on toes. You said it so well, when we don't know what to do, we tend to do nothing because we're scared to death we'll do the wrong thing. But I also yep. love that you said I had a I had the similar thought process shortly after my husband died that I was not the only one grieving his loss. And so yes, it was helpful to me to let other people help, but it was also something I could offer them, which sounds silly to say I will offer you the opportunity to help me. I mean that just sounds so selfish or so backwards, but I would see these people who were Brent's friends or family members that they were just as heartbroken that he was gone and they were just as sad and they were just as worried and just as eager to do something to heal. And that connection, I love that connection being the gate that opens that healing for grief. I don't think it erases the grief. I don't think the grief goes away. I don't think we want the grief necessarily to disappear like, oh, that never happened or I never loved and lost. But Jason, this is phenomenal. I commend you particularly as a man in a society where Asking for help is hard for all genders. I think the stereotype would be it's harder for men or less common. But that vulnerability yep. that you in your own grief and feeling that weight could – I mean I, I'm thinking I, I guarantee there's 14 people I could call who I know would help me. Would I be willing to let them all into that vulnerable level of my heart? Oh, that – ooh, whoa, that's – That's a gut check for me personally. So I love that you've introduced us to this concept of a healing team. We're going to take one more break and come back. And we want you to teach us what you've been learning with your healing team and what the healing journey has been like. We'll be right back. Jason, we are back. The healing team. So you said it's been yep. about three years from the diagnosis of your uh-huh. wife's illness. So then it's been a little over two years since you lost her. Yeah. If I'm uh-huh. if I'm doing the math, okay. Tell us how this healing yep. team and this grief journey has gone for you, particularly what you've learned um, together with these wonderful people helping you on this this shared grief path. 
Yep. And again, think about nine months after my wife passed away up until that point, I was struggling. So in in that moment of that healing team, we kind of problem solved what to do. And uh, in that moment, I was in a position where I could um, quit my job as a therapist and I could uh, I decided to take the summer off. I know not everybody can do that, but in that moment, I was able to do that. And what I found, you guys, is me and my boys, what we were doing is we were operating off of really sad and difficult memories connected to my wife's diagnosis and sickness, and that's not sustainable at all. And I realized that's how we were living our life. So what I did is I quit my job, and I said I need to create happy memories for my for my boys, they, they, they need me. So, so what I did, one of the first things I did as I quit my job, I sat out with them and I made a bucket list for my boys. And I said, okay, guys, dad's home for the summer. What are we going to do? And we came up with 40 different things on the bucket list of things that we could do to create some happy memories that could build us up and reconnect my relationship with my boys so that we could become happy again and we could heal together. And what we did on this bucket, I mean, there's, they're not like a fly to Hawaii or we did simple things. We did something like um, there's a thing called hydro dipping where you dip things in water with spray paint and they, they paint them. There was fly on a private airplane, go horseback riding, we went fishing. I took them to a fish farm. I probably ruined their fishing experience because we, <laughs> we stopped fishing five seconds. But but we di- we did these things. And what was pretty amazing is we just didn't do them alone. We threw it out on Facebook and we said, "Hey, here's our list. The vulnerability, right? Here's our list. Can anybody has any connections or anybody help us?" And people rallied around us. They said, hey, we got connections, we can do this. So again, we did that with them. And again, what I learned by doing that with people, we could help them grieve, they could check in on us, we could talk to them, and we could have our kind of our own little therapy through these experiences. And again, this was super helpful because people could check in with my boys as well. So it wasn't me bearing the strength and bearing, helping and encouraging my boys it was a team of people that were helping us process what was going on. And it was so awesome and healing. Another thing uh, that we put on there that this has kind of transformed our life is we put on there, create a lemonade stand. So the idea behind the lemonade stand was when we were going through cancer treatment, someone came over and delivered a sunshine basket yellow basket full of fun and enjoyable things and i remember in my mind there's a picture like i my brain has taken a picture of my boys smiling laughing playing together my wife without her hair was laughing and we had such an amazing experience based on that sunshine basket so on our list we had a lemonade stand so we created this lemonade stand out in our front yard a neighborhood lemonade stand and the goal was to raise a hundred bucks so that we could create two of these baskets and we would go deliver them to people that were struggling. And um, by the time the lemonade stand was done, this I, I can't believe this, 
I had $1,500 and I was like, what just happened? I was like, what are we going to do? And my boys were like, well, we need, we need to make more baskets. So I was like, okay. So I called the, the girls in the church group and I said, hey, I need 25 baskets. Here's $1,500. Can you put those together? And they got together and they put together these baskets. And then they brought them, we brought them back to my house. And they just sat in my office, and I was like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? And, and what's amazing, too, is when I was struggling, and I don't, I don't tell this very often, when I was struggling, I would walk, I'd walk into my office with those baskets and the sticker of Be Like Val on those, and it brought me peace and comfort. And I knew I could do it when I would just walk into that room so what we did next is we put it on Facebook. Hey, we we have these baskets. Is there anybody out there that has lost a spouse that is struggling? And people would reach out to us. And we began to deliver these baskets to people that we didn't know, but we knew them. I always say, I don't know you, but I know you. That means I know you on an emotional level, but I don't know you personally. And we began to connect to people that we've never met in such an amazing way. And we could give them comfort. We can tell them it sucks. And again, I could tell them my story about Val. I could keep her in my life, keep her memories. I could say her name so she's not forgotten. And it allows us to help people in the process. And I remember one specific time where I delivered to this family in Orem, the lady that we were trying to comfort was comforting my boys and asking them, and how are you doing? And again, it took the burden off of me, he trying to help them. And I, I included more people in my life to help. So we just kept delivering these baskets because there's such a huge need and people are struggling all over the place. And it was just a way of teaching my boys how to grieve and how to live through a difficult event over and over and over again. And I noticed my boys begin to be happier. And I also noticed my boys would go to the store and they would start looking for yellow things, what we could go in the basket. And I thought for a moment, I, my boys are healing because of this. And I said, I can't stop doing this because this is helping me and my boys by serving others and giving back to those that need, they need this. And we need this to be able to help through that journey. I and, and love this. It's like the best lemonade <laughs> I, stand ever. Yeah. Well, it gets better <laughs> because as soon as I threw it out on Facebook, I would get people in the widow group on the Facebook page clear across the country and in Virginia and Tennessee and Florida and saying, hey, I'm struggling too. And I was like, how in the heck am I supposed to get a basket to someone? <laughs> so I, in my morning meditation and just quieting the noise of everything, a thought came to me, I need to create a box so that I can ship it to people across the country. So I created a basket or a box, Be Like Val Basket, and we began to put these together and we began to ship them across the country to people that needed it. And I could help people on a bigger scale 
And again, I could keep the memory of my wife alive. And by doing this, you guys, and, and giving back and doing something in their honor, it has allowed me to keep my wife's memory alive. Because what I've noticed, too, is during anniversaries and those holidays, we do something that we don't intentionally do, but we brace for impact. And we just want it, that day to go by really fast. But if we do that, we're going to not heal all the way. So what we've done is created a way of celebrating their life and honoring them by doing some of their favorite things on that day so we don't forget them and they keep us connected to them in their life. And by every time I give a box or ship a box out, I'm honoring my wife and I'm keeping her alive in my life. And together, I feel like my relationship has increased by doing this on a regular basis because I know my wife would be doing the same thing, and it brings me so much peace and comfort. And again, I honestly believe that doing the service and giving back has been great therapy that has helped me and my boys become happier again. I think resilience is leaning into the discomfort and growing through your trials rather than avoiding them. That's so beautiful. I love that the opposite of grieving is connection. I love that you say that. And I love that in that process, your boys started to look for yellow things, but really they started to look for reasons to be happy, right? Yeah. And to share that with someone else. else. Yeah, to cheer someone else up. And um, I love that they saw the value in that, that they see the value in that, and that now what they're looking for is a reason to be happy and a reason to connect with other people. That is really beautiful. So, Jason, I guarantee there are people listening that want to help with your Sunshine Project because they for sure know someone who is struggling and could use a basket or they want to donate to a basket or they want to learn more. Can you tell us a little bit more how other everyday people who maybe aren't connected to you already on a widow group or whatever online could get involved? There's so much need out there. And trust me, being in those therapy sessions with families, there's just so much need. Uh, First of all, you can find us on givingsunshine.org and get connected, or you can join our Facebook page of Giving Sunshine, and that can connect you, and um, you can start communicating with us whether you know someone that is struggling or you want to get involved. But that's where I had a friend that was, he was my biggest support through my grieving process of my wife. He was someone that took me out to lunch and asked me the harder questions. He kept texting me and stayed with me. And he, he approached me, I can't even remember when, he says, Jason, I think what you're doing is amazing. A lot of people need help and support. And he says, is there any way that we could start making more baskets and offering more support to people on a bigger scale? And what we've been doing is kind of putting our own money and time and putting into creating tools, specific tools that were helpful in my journey and others, and putting them in these boxes that we can ship all over the country and a good example to this you guys is and you guys probably can relate to this is people don't know how to talk to you so what we've done is we've created we've created these support cards 
when you have your healing team, you hand them to your support team. And these are questions on here that I use in my own therapy to get people to talk and open up about what's going on. But the card literally will coach you knowing what to say and do during those difficult times. And that is just one of the tools that's in these boxes that we're trying to get and try to help when people go through those hard processes. There's another book that we've written um, because I've noticed that my boys were kind of a casualty, casualty in the experience because I was trying to manage everything else. I wasn't having those harder conversations with the kids and they would get bounced around from house to house. They, um, they would see mom's always tired. Why is mom losing her hair? And there's not a lot of opportunities to talk them through that process. So We've written some books that you can sit down and you can read them with your kids. And then it opens up a dialogue to get them talking about how they're feeling and ask the questions that they need to so that they can start healing during the journey rather than after the journey. I think it's so hard because we don't think about that. We're just in triage trying to do what's best and (laughs) try to get them fed or get them here. And You're just in survival mode. Yeah. hundred percent. We forget about those little things. And that's why we've written these books for parents and teenagers and people going through that process. So again, it opens up the dialogue of conversation, allows them to start healing and talk about it without just letting it build up. And are, then it are just, they just, primarily on cancer or do you have them on different topics? Yeah, we have them on cancer. We have them on people that have lost loved ones. We have just written one about miscarriages, and then we plan on writing them for different needs because while we're doing this, people are like, what about addiction? What yeah. about the LGBTQ community? Right. What about people that go through more miscarriages? And there's other needs, and we have plans of creating boxes specifically for them We're just trying to, me and my partner, we're launching the Kickstarter here in about a month so that we can raise money and get people behind us and champion our cause of bringing happiness and sunshine. But we need people to get behind us so that we can provide more of these resources and help for people. And really, it's like this is some of my healing tools that I teach in therapy and my own journey. And we're just want people to get happier and just feel what I've experienced and give them hope and joy again. That's, that's really what people want. Jason, I love this. I wish we had all day to hear more about what you're doing, um, what these last few months have looked like and then the next steps you're taking in your life. We might have to do a follow-up call. Tell us again what that website is and your Facebook group. uh, uh, The Facebook is giving sunshine. And then it's uh, givingsunshine.org. Okay, so we will be sure to share that with our listeners and on our social media pages and tag you and things. We have appreciated this so much. I know I have I have learned so many things from you as a widower, as a father, um, as a therapist, a, the business side. There's just a lot of things that you've shared with us today about what this resilience is. We're grateful for the time that you've not only shared with us today but the time that you've put into your healing and the ability to help others heal. We're so grateful. I'm sure our listeners have also learned and been uplifted and 
We're grateful for people like you that are not only facing your own grief and finding a way out of it, but determined to help other people. And I think that's exactly what this podcast is all about, is finding ways to share our stories, pick each other up when we're down and inspire each other to keep going. So for all of you listening, thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining Jason and his journey and this great story that he shared with us. We hope that you might consider sharing your story with us. If you're listening, you've probably been through something difficult in your life where you've learned tools and tips and and resilience through these struggles and these trials. Cancer is not the only thing that can enhance our lives through difficulty. Unfortunately, so many trials and tribulations can have that effect to, to build us and help us be stronger. Let's share that strength. If you're willing to share your story, you can find us on Facebook or Instagram. You can email us at rrpodcast at ksl.com. Remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their lives. Thanks, Jason. You're welcome. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.